0: Well, good morning, South Winds. It is so good uh, to see each of you today. So glad that you are here. And uh, I think most of you know, but just in case you don't, uh, we want you to be aware that we are embarking on a new uh, schedule starting this week. And uh, we are going to be gathering together at 9 a.m. indoors. And we just had a great time of worship uh, inside our auditorium um, just before this, we've moved our outdoor service to ten thirty. We are also uh, continuing our online service for those whom that serves best. And I just want to encourage those of you who are here to help us get the word out. Not everybody's going to necessarily uh, get our communications. Just know p- that uh, help people know that we are doing this. Um, we're providing kids space uh, for our children indoors at both times. Uh, and so, you know, we've had kids at nine o'clock that were over there learning and uh, worshiping together. That's happening right now as well. So if, if you can help get the word out about that. Also, let people know. And, and by the way, we're moving stuff here because um, it may rain and we just don't want to blow out a bunch of electronics. We don't care if you guys get wet, but um, you know, we, we we want to be ready just in case it starts uh, coming down. We don't think it's going to. It's kind of for forecasting and maybe a drizzle or something like that. But one thing I wanted to make sure that you guys knew and you can help get the word out, there's going to be kind of a change in our online service. Uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to be live streaming rather than a, a pre-recorded service as we've been doing uh, throughout this last year. And so what that means is simply this, that service won't be available until 9 o'clock because that's when we'll start. It'll be live. It also means that it won't be on demand until after that service is completed. And so just for people, you know, there's probably a few people, maybe you know some of them who like to do church, you know, really, really early. Um, And if they wanted to do it before 9 o'clock, that's not going to be possible um, in the weeks ahead. Uh, but they are going to have access to it starting at nine and then throughout the rest of the week. And so if you can get the word out. Um, Also, just uh, be aware that we anticipate more changes are going to happen as we move through this season, as things change. Um, We anticipate that more people as vaccinations happen and cases go down will be uh, willing to come back. And so that may change how we do stuff. Just keep checking our social media feeds. Um, Also, if you don't get emails or texts from us periodically. That probably has something to do with your settings on the Southwinds Current, and if you'd like to get those, that's one of the primary ways we communicate. Um, You can check that out, and we'll help you fix that as well. One more thing before we get our Bibles open, and that is uh, we have a, a great need for volunteers now as we're starting to meet again indoors, If any of you are willing, maybe you want to keep coming to Outdoor, but you're willing to come and serve um, at 9 o'clock, please email info at southwinds.org. Or if you see Pastor Chris Martinez, he's the one uh, taking the information. You can just tell him, and we'll help you get connected. All right. uh, Who's ready to study God's Word? If you don't have your Bibles open, whether they're paper copy or an electronic copy, go ahead and do that right now. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. And we're in week four of our series, Joyful. And today we're going to be exploring one of the most beautiful and profound passages in all the Bible. And I'm telling you ahead of time, we're going to see this lofty language, these stirring images that will move us to the core of our beings. But I want to keep reminding you that Paul is writing these beautiful words in the context of some harsh realities. Paul himself is in prison. And the people he's writing to live in a culture where it wasn't safe to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, their employers, their neighbors wanted them to fit in to believe what everyone else in the culture believes or at least said they believe. But this little church, this little community of Christ followers in Philippi, they are refusing to submit. They are refusing to bow to the political correctness of their day. They are saying, we will not do, we will not say things that would cause us to deny Jesus Christ. And because of that, they're facing the possibility of persecution. But here's what you need to know today. That wasn't their primary danger. There was also a problem inside the church just as serious And that problem was disunity. Now, we don't know the details. Uh, We kind of get the impression from this passage. And then we get another hint about it in chapter 4, verse 2, as we'll see uh, in a few weeks when Paul uh, names a couple of women in the church and he urges them to reconcile. So something's going on. We don't know exactly what. But in this passage, chapter 2, 1 through 11, Paul is going after a problem all of us struggle with, even as Christ followers. And our problem is this. From the moment we're born, we think it's all about me, right? Selfishness, self-centeredness is our instinct, our reflex, our default mode from the moment we draw breath until the moment we stop breathing. And on top of that, as Americans, we live in a culture that incessantly is telling us it's all about you, right? I mean, these messages are just everywhere. You have to look out for number one. If you don't take care of yourself, who will? You're the most important person in your world, right? On and on and on and on. And that kind of message even is happening in the church. Um, There are people who are supposedly teaching the Bible where that's really what they're putting out there. And I think some of us even have uh, believed this, and that's where we're living. But here's the reality, and Paul's going to make it so clear. This is selfishness. And selfishness is a form of pride. And pride is the original sin that caused all the ugly brokenness that we see in our world. Now, what Paul's going to show us today is that if we want to live a joy-filled life, that requires that we look out for number two. That's the title of this message, looking out for number two. We need to look out for number two, not number one. We need to put others above ourselves. Uh, Some of you will remember there's kind of an old acronym uh, for joy that some of us learned in Sunday school. And it really tells us this. We have true joy in our lives when life is prioritized like this. Jesus, others, you. And that's what Paul's talking about Paul wants us to see that the path to true joy is not seeking our own agendas, putting our own desires first. Paul's telling us we experience true joy only when we first seek Jesus' glory and the good of others. And then our joy flows out of that. Now, this is an amazing passage. Some of you know it. uh, Some of you love it. It is so profound and at the same time so practical. And I want to show you three ways to look out for number two, or if you want to subtitle it, three ways to be full of joy. Here's the first one. And if you uh, don't know it yet, you can get this outline on your app if you'd like to take notes there uh, with your phone or your, your, your device of some kind. And the first way is this, pursue the joy of unity. Who here, raise your hand, would agree that we need some unity in our nation right now, right? Um, We need unity. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and of one mind. Now, these two verses are framed as if-thens, and Paul begins with four ifs, and what he's asking with these, these ifs is this simple question, and I want to ask you to answer the question, has God blessed you? What's the answer? Yes. God has blessed you. And, and So he's just asking, is this the case in your life? Do you have encouragement in your life you never would have known without Christ? The answer is yes. Have you ever experienced comfort from the love of Jesus? Yes. Do you know fellowship with other people, community, because of the Spirit? Yes. Is there any tenderness and compassion that builds you up and lifts you up? Yes. It's like, yes, 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 yes. Those are the ifs. And then we see Paul's then. He says, because of these things, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and of one mind. Paul says, complete my joy. Now, I've been telling you these first few weeks that that Philippians is all about joy. It's really about kind of a, a defiant joy, a joy that refuses to be determined by circumstances. And what you see here in these two verses is this, and you might want to write this down and kind of think about it. Joy is intrinsically relational. It's intrinsically relational. Paul is saying, I need you to complete my joy. And truth is, you cannot know true joy by yourself. Have you figured that out in the last year? That being alone, that being isolated doesn't help, right? We've kind of learned that in a way that we might have not learned it any other way. We need each other. And uh, one of the things that this means is that God's blessings are given to us so that we can bless others. See, we need to be reminded, Paul's doing this here, that, that God's gifts never terminate on you. So if you've been comforted, comfort others. If you've been encouraged, encourage others. If, if, if someone has provided for you in some way, provide a, find a way to provide for others. This is how we live together in unity. But it's all rooted in God's blessings. Now, Paul says in verse 2, he says, be like-minded. He says, have the same love. Uh, be one in spirit and mind. And again, I want to keep pointing it out to you. Notice the role of our minds. You know, we think joy is about how we feel in our culture. But joy is far more, the Bible says, about how we think. Joy is about love. It is about how we think. And Paul just keeps saying this. You know, if you're marking up your Bible as you read through Philippians, you should write, you know, underline or circle however you want to do it, words like think and mind. And, you know, as, as you see these in your text, Paul just is focused on this. Joy comes from how we think. Now, it's also amazing here is that Paul is talking about unity he has with other people who are actually hundreds of miles away from him. He's isolated in a Roman prison. They're far away, and it's almost as if he is saying you can be united even when you're not able to be together physically, right? So let's talk about this because these are pretty divisive times in our country, right? I mean, this is a timely word of unity right now. I mean, if you go back for a year, think about it. I mean, when everything first shut down last year, there was this kind of uh, initial unity and solidarity, but it didn't take long for disunity to erupt because, you know, everybody's got opinions, right? Uh, Everything got political, and of course, we know now that 2020 is going to go down as one of the most divisive years we've ever seen in our nation, and the truth, the sad truth is that this has happened even in the church, You know, I'm kind of aware, maybe some of you are, probably you're not, but even this Sunday as we're reopening, everyone will have opinions because there are some people in our community who have been saying, we should have opened a long time ago, and by the way, by the way, there are some of those people who have been saying that who have chosen not to attend this outdoor service, so I don't quite understand, but then there are some people, and they don't think we should have opened indoors yet. They don't think it's safe yet. They think we should wait. There are some people who are mad that we're requiring masks. And then there are some of us that are mad at the people who won't wear the masks. I mean, you know, everybody's got opinions. Everything's gotten politicized. So every move we make as a church, you know, starts to get slotted into this social, political, you know, issues that are bigger and around us. And I can just tell you that with regard to reopening, we have been praying. We've been seeking wisdom from God. We've been talking to people outside our church, getting outside counsel. Uh, we have, we've been following guidelines from public health. We're just doing our best to lay a path forward that we feel is best for the church as a whole and then allow each of you to engage with that in whatever way that you deem best for your, yourself and your family. Now, I'm just bringing this up to remind us it's okay to have an opinion, and it's okay for us to have different opinions. But what Paul is saying is that we should hold our opinions inside the greater cause of pursuing unity. Paul's saying that we have our opinions inside the greater cause of unity, which is a relational unity, where we're kind to each other, we're gracious to each other, we forgive one another, we we don't assume the worst, we're not suspicious, we work through our conflicts we avoid gossip and slander we assume the best not the worst we act in love now why was that so important to paul well the answer short in short was it was because it was so important to jesus unity was vital to everything jesus wanted to do in the world through his people the church do you remember the uh, account in john's gospel of jesus last words with his disciples before the cross, what he did with them that night when he knew it was the end and he was going to die the next day. I mean, these are like the most strategic moments of all for him. What did he do with them? If you look back at John 17, you'll see that he prayed. And then if you look at what he prayed for, you'll see that he prayed for you and me. He prayed for his future followers. And then when you ask, well, what did he pray for us? Well, his primary prayer for us as his followers would be that we would be unified. Listen to John 17, starting in verse 20. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you. I pray that they, that's you, will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know, the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. We need to ask the question, why did unity matter to Jesus? And the answer, first of all, is because unity reflects God's nature. Did you notice how Jesus, who was God the Son, was talking about his relationship to God the Father and, and how that becomes a model for how we should be interacting with each other? You know, one of the most amazing teachings in the Bible is the teaching that God is triune, that his very nature is Trinity. Three persons who are one God God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons who are the one God. And so in this prayer, you find Jesus referring to God the Father, but also referring to himself as God, God the Son. Back in that day, to be the son of someone in the way Jesus was referring to meant that you were of the same order as that person, to have the same qualities as that person. Now, hearing that, you know, you might right now be going, I, I don't get it. I, I can't quite wrap my mind around it. Well, that's okay, because with God, there's always a sense of mystery, and the reason for that is something we say around here quite a lot. Uh, he is God, and we're not, right? Right? He is God, and we're not. And and the the word mystery uh, means that something is not able to be fully explained or comprehended. It doesn't mean it's irrational. It it means it's suprarational. It's supernatural. It's something that's beyond human knowledge and understanding. And that means when it comes to God, there's always going to be this sense of the mysterious. And here's the thing. I am so glad That's a great thing. It's a great thing. Because if I could understand everything about God, do you realize he wouldn't be God? If you could understand everything about God, he wouldn't be God. Because that would mean that our finite minds could comprehend him, which by definition would make him finite, which by definition would make him no longer God. Does that make sense? Tell me you're out there. I just need to check. All right. So what you need to know is that In this context, the mystery regarding God as Trinity isn't the headline. The headline is what Trinity tells us about God. Here's the headline. If you want to write something down, write these three words down. God is community. God is community. Father, Son, Spirit are community. And we are created in their image. That means we were made to be in community with them and with each other. Uh, authors Brent Curtis and John Eldridge talk about this in their book, The Sacred Romance. I want you to listen to what they say. Think of your best moments of love or friendship or creative partnership, the best times with family or friends around the dinner table, your richest conversations, the acts of simple kindness that sometimes seem like the only things that make worth, life worth living. Like the shimmer of sunlight on a lake, these are reflections of the love that flows among the Trinity. And listen to this. We long for intimacy because we were made in the image of perfect intimacy. See, not only is that longing in our hearts, it was the very reason for our creation. The love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could not be contained. It had to be shared. And we get this just instinctively. You know this. Anytime something happens in your life that's, that's amazing or great or wonderful or beautiful, what do you want to do? You want to tell someone about it, right? You, know, you see the, a picture or you watch a sunrise, Anytime you, you just catch a glimpse of anything wonderful, you instantly want to find someone and say, come and look, come and see this. You've got to see this. you got to see this. This is why, by the way, married lovers want to increase their joy by having children. They want to share what they have. It's no wonder the 14th century f- uh, philosopher and theologian Meister Eckhart once wrote that we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity. And this is the first reason unity matters. It is literally a God thing, literally. But unity is also something further. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this. We're actually going to come back to it later in our study of Philippians. But it's also there in John 17. The second reason is our unity as Jesus' people, that's what captures the world's attention. Our unity as followers captures the world's attention. Unity is what tells the world that Jesus is who he says he is. And then conversely, disunity denies Jesus and what he came to do. I mean, all of us have probably talked to someone at some point in time who said, I don't have any interest in being a Christian. You say, why? They say, because Christians have all these problems. They fight among themselves. They're this, they're that. I have enough problems in my life, right? You ever talk to somebody like that? See, when we're like that, when we're not unified, we push people away. And this all means we should care deeply about unity. It's not only our joy, it's also our message. Now, just in case you're wondering, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not unanimity. It's just a oneness in love, a oneness as we come together in our diversity, and the love of Christ makes us one. So how do we get it? How do we keep it? Well, that's what Paul says next. His second way uh, that we can look out for number two, second way we can be full of joy. He says we experience the joy of unity when we choose the way of humility. Choose the way of humility. This is verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Does that sound like it's addressed to America today, 2021? And I'm talking about both political parties, okay? How about, I was thinking about this, how about the state we actually live in, California, you know, the state of Hollywood celebrities, the state of Silicon Valley tech billionaires. I mean, our economy is fueled by selfish ambition. This word, Greek word for vain conceit, it's actually two words that are kind of smashed together. You pull them apart, it means empty glory, empty glory. And the idea behind this word conceit is that something looks glorious, but there's no reality behind it. It's, it's status without substance. If you want to kind of think about these two things, you could write this down. Selfish ambition is about wanting more than others, wanting more than others. It's about aligning our lives around the pursuit of the things that benefit me, whether it's wealth or recognition or comfort or pleasure. It's about taking, not giving. Vain conceit is about thinking more of yourself than others. It's thinking, I'm more important. I'm in control. I'm smarter. I deserve this. So here's my question right now. Who are you right now thinking they really need to hear this? If you're thinking that right now, here's what I need to say to you. You need to forget about them and you need to think about yourself. Because this is a word for all of us. I just want to ask, will you be courageous enough to ask God to show you where there's selfish ambition or vain conceit in your life? Because Paul is talking to you. Paul's talking to me. And the reality is we all struggle with this in some way. Paul is talking about pride here. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what kind of personality you have, loud or, or quiet, whether you're a hard driver or you're kind of a retiring person. Everybody struggles with pride. We're all sinners, amen? And pride is the root of all sin. So all of us need to hear Paul say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But then he goes on to say what we are to do. Rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves. I want to stop here for a moment and tell you something you may not have ever heard before. You need to know this. Paul saying this, Paul bringing up humility was shocking in his context in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world. Uh, the Greco-Roman world did not see humility as a virtue. Now, if you've ever read Greek philosophy, and I'm sure a number of you have i been reading Greek philosophy, you know, on the Internet sometime this last week, right? No? Okay. Well, uh, if you have ever read it, you might know that they like to talk a lot, the Greek philosophers, about virtues. They talked a lot about beauty and goodness and, and truth and things like this, but they never talked about humility. And the reason was they didn't think humility was a good thing. Humility was not a virtue, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in our language, the words humility and humiliation are etymologically connected. You can see that, the, how they go together. But in their minds, those words were existentially connected. Humility and humiliation were the same things for them because humility was a trait reserved for slaves. So they lived in this honor-shame culture. Status was everything. Rank, reputation, that was the currency of the day. And so being humble was not something anybody aspired to be. And yet, Paul radically calls them to humility. And the reason he does that is because pride is at the heart of all this unity. We can't have unity without humility. Now, I think we kind of know what pride is. Pride's like being high on yourself and low on others. So you might think, well, does that mean humility is being high on others and low on yourself? The answer to that is no. But humility is also not being high on others and high on yourself. And we get confused about that today. Here's what real humility is about humility is simply putting others first. Someone has said this: humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is kind of interesting. Uh, maybe you've noticed this. Maybe some of you in your work have noticed this. But humility has kind of acquired kind of a cachet in, in our culture today. And some of you have experienced this in your careers. Um, there are corporations like Apple. I, I'm aware of this, who have really put a focus on servant leadership. And so there's a lot of books. If you go to Amazon and you type in humility and business, you'll find all kinds of books about humility in business. But here's the thing. Often when you get below the surface, you see something very different than what Paul's talking about. There was a recent bestseller Um, on leadership written from a secular point of view that talked a lot about the importance of humility. But here's the thing. When the author described why humility is important, it was said that, that if you're humble, people will trust you more, and you'll get ahead more, and you'll be promoted more, and you can climb the ladder more. That's why you're humble. Anybody see a problem there? A disconnect? See, really, something like that is selfishness cloaked in humility. The author C.S. Lewis once described what a truly humble person would look like. He said, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. See, true humility is simply putting God and others first. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Can you imagine what our nation would look like if we were doing this all of us? What about our state? What about our neighborhood? If anyone, if everyone was putting the interests in front of others, in front of their own interests? I mean, we live in Tracy, so let's think about commuting, right? Some of you are like, I don't want to think about commuting. It's Sunday. Too bad. Just for a couple minutes. But think about commuting. What if you're on, you know, the Altamont and people are wanting to merge, and you go. Sure, go right ahead. No problem. Cut right in front of me. I don't care. That would be strange, right? Or or if you go to the mall. Does anybody remember malls? And, and you know, like you're looking for a parking space and it's kind of crowded in the parking lot and there's two cars approaching one space and you stop and you say, go ahead. I don't mind. I'll drive around this parking lot for 20 more minutes. No problem. Everybody's looking for other people's interests before their own. People would be apologizing to each other on Twitter and Facebook, right, if this was happening? I mean, can you imagine what life would be like if everyone actually obeyed this? But here's the real question. What if we, the church, actually obeyed this? What if we all put the interests of others before our own? How would that impact the way we we talk with each other? How would that impact the way we serve here at Southwinds? How would that impact the way we give if we put the interests of others before ourselves? I think we all know, everybody around here, we all know we desperately need unity right now. And Paul's telling us unity only comes when we choose the way of humility. Humility. You might be kind of asking, though, at this point, well, what exactly does that look like? What does humility look like? And that's what Paul shows us next in verses 5 through 11. He turns our attention to the example of Jesus. And here's the third way to be full of joy. We need to learn to think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Now, these verses are incredible and a lot of scholars believe that what we have in verses 5 through 11 is actually a hymn that was sung in the early church all around uh, the Mediterranean world when church gatherings happened people gathered together they they sang this hymn on Sundays and it's called today by scholars the Christ hymn, and it's almost like it's almost like Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians, and he gets to this point in the letter, and he just like copies and pastes this hymn right there, just dumps it right into the letter. And I love that this is a hymn because it is really rich in theology, and it reminds us that the truest form of theology is not textbooks and degrees and uh, debates. The truest form of theology is the worship of our crucified, risen Lord. So with that in mind, let's look at this hymn together. And and don't miss, as you go through it, this hymn is fundamentally about how we think. How we think. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So verse 5 tells us that this is about our relationships. You see that? It's about our relationships with uh, other people, our unity as Jesus' people. And it it says that we are to live in humility in our relationships. And we do that, Paul says, as we learn to think like Jesus. As we have, as some of your translations say, as we have the mind of Christ. And Christ's mind was so very humble. Verse 6 tells us about the magnitude of Jesus' humility. It reminds us that from eternity past, Jesus was and is the Son of God, in very nature God, second person of the Trinity. And Paul tells us instead of exalting himself, he emptied himself. Jesus willingly walked away from glory. He gave up his throne. He turned his back on all his status and privileges, all those things that he was infinitely worthy of. He stepped down when all he ever deserved was to be lifted up. Verse 7 says Jesus made himself nothing by becoming human, taking the very nature of a servant. And and just be reminded, this does not mean in any way he ceased to be God. Jesus did not give up his deity. He gave up his status and his rights and his privilege. And friends, when you stop and you ponder, it is almost too glorious to comprehend. The creator entered creation. The author wrote himself, into the story. The infinite God became a finite man, flesh and blood. But in the incarnation, Jesus did not reduce himself. He restrained himself. He was fully God and fully man who, in humility, did not use his own power for his own advantage, but he used his power for those he came to save. You know, we recently celebrated Christmas And I think one of the things we often tend to do is we kind of romanticize the Christmas story a little too much. And it's good for us to remember that Jesus, he came to earth as a baby. I mean, like a real baby. (laughs) A baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder. A baby who was utterly dependent on one poor teenage mother for food and shelter and love. And you know, I've been reminded this week of the vulnerability of a baby, as we have welcomed our third grandchild into the world this week. You know, some of you have been wondering. Jackson Michael Nolan was born early Tuesday morning, and uh, if you want to see a picture, and I know you do, because um, hundreds of you have been asking for me to show you pictures, uh, you'll have to line up afterwards, no I'll take time, Uh, but it's online. Uh, You can see them there, and uh, you can see the pictures, and you will see what I know, that he's beautiful and extremely intelligent, Um, but he's also utterly helpless. He's totally dependent, just like Jesus was, because Jesus gave up everything for us, and he grew up. And he lived his life in desperate poverty. He lived his life in a backwater town that no one respected. He was a working man. He worked with his hands just like anybody else. And when he started his ministry, just think about the miracles that Jesus did. I mean, he did all these incredible miracles, but he never did one for himself. He gave up his rights without giving up his essence. He used his power and authority to serve others. He did not cling to what he had in and of himself you know we can we can think of maybe human examples of service we can think of a parent putting the needs of their child above their own we can we can think of a boss maybe who covers for one of their employees but here's the thing whatever you think of nothing compares to this the king of the universe became a servant to save us and just when you didn't think that Jesus could get Any lower, look again at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The author of life submitted himself to death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. And maybe you know this, but maybe you don't. Crucifixion was a form of Roman execution that was designed not to just kill the victim, but to publicly shame them. And one of the ways they did that was they stripped them of all their clothes And they marched them through the streets on the way to the place where they would die. They made everything as public as possible. This victim walking naked before everyone. And then while still naked being nailed to the cross. And then while still naked hanging there in their shame until they die. And here's what you need to hear. Jesus was no exception. Now I know every painting of Jesus on the cross has him wearing a loincloth. But that's just artistic modesty. Jesus had no loincloth. Jesus would have been laid bare before the world in as humiliating a way as possible. Before friends, before strangers, before his mother, before the whole world. And it doesn't get any lower than this. So let Paul's words sink in. Jesus humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And as incredible as that is, what's even more incredible is when you look at it and think about it, the emphasis here is not just Jesus' descent, lower and lower and lower. The emphasis here is that Jesus did this voluntarily, his willingness to do this. He wasn't forced to do this. He chose to do this. He did it out of love. He died for our sin, and Jesus deserved none of it. And yet, for our sake, he endured all of it. But of course... This is not the end of the story. This is a story of descent and ascent. Look at the last three verses, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus died, but then he rose from the dead, amen. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He who suffered is now exalted and has the name above every name. He is the Alpha and Omega, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Paul's word tell us something glorious. One day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that one day everyone will be saved. But one day, every knee will bow, whether in honor or in shame. And this tells us that our response is, Our obedience is to proclaim Jesus as Lord today because Jesus, friends, he's Lord whether anyone recognizes it or not. And let me ask you this question. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Lord? You know, to trust him as Lord, to receive his grace is the greatest thing we can do with our lives to recognize that he died and rose and now reigns, and then to follow him with all that is in us, that is what it means to say Jesus is Lord. And that includes humility. You know, I would say to you that saying Jesus is Lord is like the most humble statement you could ever make. And and when you say it, and when you actually live it, it's like this fountain a fountain that a life of humility just begins to flow from so so the next time you feel like boasting or bragging about something you've done or who you are remember Jesus is lord and give him the glory the next time you want to you want to get your own way remember Jesus is lord And you will seek to serve others, put them first. The next time you want to get to acquire, remember Jesus as Lord, and you will start looking to give in this age of acquisition and possession. See, when we think right according to God's truth, it always humbles us. It always causes us to live for Jesus' glory and to put others first. As we look to Jesus, we become more and more of people who lay down our rights, a people who use our power and authority to serve others. And when we do this, friends, do not miss this. When we as the church do this together, people will see and people will be drawn to Jesus Christ. And don't forget, we will get joy, lives full of joy. Here's kind of a summary of what I think Paul's teaching us in this passage, true unity comes through humility that focuses on Christ's glory. I just want to close with this. To really understand and receive what Paul is teaching us, we have got to be honest about our pride. And that's all of us, not just some of us. C.S. Lewis wrote these words as well. He said, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Nothing, whatever can be done before it, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. And so the question that I want to leave us all with is, are you willing to admit your pride? Because this is where true joy begins. This is where true joy begins. Admitting your pride is where freedom from sin begins. This is where rich and deep relationships with other people begins. This is where knowing God begins. So acknowledge the pride that's in your heart. Hear the word of the Lord that says to all of us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Say, I call on everyone today. Confess your pride, surrender control to Christ, look to Him as the Savior, the Savior who humbled himself and was exalted for you. See, the, the in the end, the final analysis, being humble has nothing to do with us thinking about our humility. Humility is a byproduct. In fact, if you're thinking about how humble you are, it's just a sign you're not humble, right? Humility is a byproduct. If you want to be humble, here's what you do. Fix your gaze on Jesus. Focus on his glory. See who he really is. And humility will begin to grow in you as you look at him. And joy will begin to grow in you as you look at him. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? God, we thank you today. We thank you for your your son, Jesus, that you sent him and that he took on our flesh and he who was the king became a servant. He who reigns over all washed disciples' feet and then he went to the cross in our place for our sin. And, And so, God, today we receive your grace. We trust you with open hands. We thank you once again that not only did Christ die for our sins, but he entered into our brokenness, and then he rose from the grave, and then you exalted him, and he now reigns over all. And Father, I just pray that anyone who has not yet bowed the knee, anyone, Lord, who has not confessed Jesus is Lord, Lord, that they'll do that today, that they will repent of their sins and turn in faith to you, to you, the humble king who gave his life for sinners like us. And so, Lord, we look to you today in a time that's difficult, a time where we have lots of questions. We look to you, God, and we remember that Jesus, the Christ, is reigning from the throne. And we pray, Lord, that as we think about that reality, that our faith would increase and we would grow in our trust and our lives would be given for you alone. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. And all God people together say, amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody.